Hey, good morning, church family. This morning, I have to start with a confession. Many of you know that I have not always been in full-time paid ministry. Put another way, I haven't always been a pastor. For the first 20 years or so of my career, I was in banking and finance. I I was a CFA, a chartered financial analyst. I I co-owned a small private equity firm. And as a result of all this, you know, one would assume, in fact, some have assumed that I know a good investment when I see one. Here's my confession. Sometimes I do, and, well, sometimes I don't. During the financial crisis of 2008, the bank I worked for, well, their stock was taking a beating, just like every other financial stock on the market. And Joan and I, we owned, because of an employee stock ownership program that everybody in the company was part of, we owned just a small amount of shares. As I remember, the stock would always trade somewhere in the neighborhood of $46 to $48 a share, and I used to tell Joan that, Once the stock hits 50, which it was projected to do, we would sell our few shares and stick the money in the bank to start a college savings account for the kids. Well, then 2008 came along and the stock plummeted like a stone. When it got down to like $17 a share or so, I convinced my wife, based on my reputation as an astute investor, that if we liked it at $46 a share, we should love it at 17. And so not only did we hold the shares we had, we invested more, which we did, oh, I don't know, not too many weeks before the government took the bank over and the shares fell to zero. Friends, there is an old Wall Street axiom, bulls make money, bears make money, and pigs got slaughtered. Welcome to week three of questions Jesus asked that we ought to answer. And today we're going to take a look at a question Jesus asked, actually two, that have to do with investments and returns. Now, if you're just joining us for the first time in the series, here's the story. What we're discovering over the last few weeks is that Jesus, as recorded by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, he asks a lot more questions than he was ever asked, which is super interesting because we tend to think that he came to give answers, that that was one of his purposes But if that was his purpose, in some sense, he failed miserably because Jesus asked some 307 questions. By way of contrast, Jesus was only asked 183, and of those 183, he only directly answers three. Why? Well, part of the reason is that Jesus uses questions differently than we do. We ask questions for information. Jesus asks questions to provoke transformation. We ask questions for answers. Jesus questions for awareness. Jesus asks questions to confront us with our own thought process, our preconceptions, assumptions, and beliefs. He wants to illuminate for us our our own conception of reality and then examine it in the light of what God has to say. So in order for us to do this, we have to wrestle with what we actually think. One of my favorite quotes, which really underlies the whole series, heck, I think it underlies the whole ministry here at Mendham, is if your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idealized version of yourself. You see, Jesus asked so many questions in order that this might be revealed to us. And so let's get down to it. Well, let's get down to business. This morning, we're going to take a look at Jesus' teaching on ROI for you business guys, return on investment. And so let me set the scene for you. It's a scene that's so important. All three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record this. 
It's been now when the story picks up just a short time since Jesus had used five loaves of bread to feed 5,000 people and seven loaves of bread to feed 4,000 people. The disciples, these 12 men closest to Jesus, his, his students, his followers, who had seen these miracles and had felt the admiration, appreciation of the people, the awe of the people that they helped to feed. It's right at this point that Jesus asks his disciples, well, another question, one that we're actually going to take a look at in a couple of weeks. Well, Jesus is so pleased by Peter's answer to that coming question, here's what Jesus says to him. I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. And I mean, come on now, man. If you're Peter, I mean, you got a big head, right? Word, word is already around town that you're Peter. You walked on water. People on the streets have heard that you helped feed thousands with just a few loaves of, of bread and fish. And now this, Jesus is going to build his church on your shoulders. Peter, Jesus says, I'm giving you the keys to, to the kingdom. I mean, guys, I thought I had made it. I got a big head when my dad gave me the keys to his 76 Plymouth Volare with seats of rich Corinthian leather. Imagine Jesus giving you the keys to the kingdom. And, maybe not surprisingly, it's right at this moment, maybe at Peter's greatest moment, where his story takes a dramatic turn. Matthew tells us, from that time on, from the time he told Peter what he just did, and going forward over and over, repeatedly, I guess, more than once, Mark says, in fact, that Jesus spoke very plainly about these things. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. And so now Peter, being one of these followers, maybe one of his most famous ones, both now and then, Peter, when he's hearing this repeated over and over from Jesus, what must he be thinking? I mean, there's got to be an element here of, wait, what? Jesus, you're the Messiah, the Savior. Jesus, you turn water to wine. Jesus, you cast out demons. Jesus, you calm storms. Jesus, I was there. You fed thousands of people with a couple of loaves of bread. Jesus, you raised people from the dead. We've seen it. How can a guy who raises people from the dead wind up dead? Which is why Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, get this now, Peter did not question him. Peter didn't debate him. Peter rebuked him. Look it up. You know what rebuke means? It means to express sharp disapproval or criticize him. Peter starts criticizing Jesus. Never, Lord, he said. This shall never happen to you. Now, why is Peter sharply disapproving of and criticizing Jesus? Well, I mean, the reality is it's because Peter is not all that dumb. Peter knows why he walked on water. Peter knows how he fed the thousands, and Peter knows what's likely to happen to him, 
the most famous of followers of Jesus, if something were to happen to Jesus. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Talk about a rebuke. How's that for a rebuke? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, and you don't have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Friends, is I mean, if, if Peter walk on water, Peter, if Peter that holds the keys of the kingdom, Peter who walked with Jesus day after day, every day for over three years, if Peter in how he relates to Jesus does not have in mind the concerns of God but merely human concerns, how much more might we? Which is what I think Jesus realizes right at that moment. I mean, if Peter is just in this whole thing in a sense for what he can get from Jesus. If Peter can fall into this misunderstanding of how this whole thing is going to work, well then who can't? And so Mark says that it was at that moment, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples. And, well, one of the things he does is he asks them a question. Two, really. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Now stick with me. It's really a business question, right? Many of you are business people. Heck, all of you are managing budgets to one degree or another, household budgets. So you probably know what profit is, right? Profit is simply derived when income is greater than expenses. And so I think Jesus is asking a very real question here. And in order to answer it, we're going to have to take a look at those two components of profit. The first is the income side, which is in the question, well, it's the whole world. Which, look, it's like a real lot. It's like everything the world has to offer. Some guy this week in Maryland, and I, I hate to break this to you if you haven't already heard it, he, he won the Powerball lottery, $731.1 million, but it would be more than that. I mean, it, it's the whole world. It's not just money. It's the whole world. It's power. It's glory. It's fame. It's sex. It's the hot girl, the cute guy, the cool friend group. It's the prestigious job, the, the maxed out 401k the accomplished straight-A varsity as a freshman, academic and athletic scholarship achieving college kid. I, I mean, I don't know what your whole world is, but put in here, right, like put it in here, is it being young or skinny or beautiful or jacked up or wrinkle-free or well-dressed? I mean, it's the whole world, right? So, I mean, for me, you could throw in there a, a beach house in Maryland, a a boat, well, you know, I'm at the beach, a, a four-bedroom retirement home in Del Boca Vista Phase 2, retirement travel to places I've always wanted to see. Heck, I'm a pastor, so I'll put in there a bigger congregation and a, and a book deal and a podcast. I was thinking as I was going through this, you know what I would get? I would get season tickets to the Cowboys and the Mets, but then I thought, heck, it's the whole world. I'm just going to choose to own the Cowboys and the Mets. I know I actually even debated, do I want to be president? I'm not sure I, I want to be as I reflected on it, but I'll take the political power and influence so I can finally fix things in this country and make them right again. So that's the income side. Now, we need to take into account there's an expense side of the ledger. The income side is pretty hefty. 
Now, underneath the expense side of the ledger, Jesus lists only one, your soul. Which, look, if we're honest, it sounds kind of spooky, and at the same time, a bit ambiguous. My soul. What is my soul? I mean, how am I supposed to make a a good investment decision, Jesus, if I don't really understand the cost? The reality is most of our understanding about our soul is limited to a bedtime prayer our moms taught us as little kids. Now I lay me down to sleep, I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. And for most of us, our understanding of our soul is just that. It's pretty limited. It's in some sense, I guess, it's the me inside of me. Because we, we all understand that we're more than bodies. We, we all know and have experienced bodies die. And so that part of us that is not body, that's other, that's our soul. Or as it's called in other places in the Bible, it's our spirit. Now, what I would guess is that almost all of us believe that we're more than just bodies, right? You don't have to believe in God or Jesus to believe that you are more than just body. I remember when the kids were little and I tried to explain the concept of a soul or a spirit to them. I, I would take their arm and knock on their arm and look right at it. And with Courtney, I'd go, Courtney, is this you? Is this you in here? And then I'd work my way up to her shoulder and I'd knock on her shoulder, Courtney, is this shoulder you? And then I would pretend, like, if I cut off your leg right here, Courtney, would you be gone? And Courtney would always just kind of laugh at these things because they were funny and we'd have fun with them. And and she would keep saying, no, that's not me. No, that's not me. And eventually we'd get to the place where she would just go, that's not me. I'm in here. I'm in here. I'm in this body. Most of us believe that. Most of us believe that we're body and soul. Most of us believe that something happens to the soul after we die. Pretty interesting statistic. I read it this week. While it's true that religious affiliation is on the decline in America, yet 80% of Americans say they believe in an afterlife, which is actually up seven points from the 1970s. So when Jesus speaks about the cost of being, uh, the cost being our soul, is he speaking about heaven or hell here? Is he, is he saying what good is it to get lots of stuff if you wind up not in the afterlife or, or worse, in hell? Well, he, he might be, but I, I think it's more than that. Let me explain. You see, in, in order to fully appreciate the profound and brilliant nature of what Jesus is hoping you'll reflect on and realize about yourself, you have to understand what he, me- what he means by the cost in the equation. When he says, what is, when he says soul, what does he mean? Well, I like how both John Orberg and Dallas Willard describe it. Your soul is more than just the inside you. Your soul is different than just yourself. You see, your soul, your soul is the deepest dimension of your existence. It it captures the reality of life before God in a way that the word self doesn't. Think of the difference between the words soulish and selfish. You're not just a self, you are also a soul. You're a soul made in the image of God to be be dependent and in relationship intimately with God. That's your soul. What what Jesus is, is saying is that gaining the whole world, all the stuff the world has to offer us, it has to do with self, not soul. It impacts soul. 
See, our major concern most of the time is with the self part of us. And uh, uh, that would make perfect sense, right? Because the world hammers it home to us all the time. Uh, we're told, who do we need to watch out for? Ourselves. If we're stressed out or overworked or overweight, you need to learn to take care of yourself. When our kids get picked on at school, we tell them to stand up for, for yourself. When they get discouraged, we tell them to believe in yourself. When they go for a job interview or on a first date, we say, just be yourself. We worry about self. We celebrate self. We care for the self. And at the end of the day, here's what we know about the self. The self is a standalone, I can do it by myself unit. Now your soul, you see, your soul is different. Your soul exists before God. The soul reminds us we're not made by ourselves. We're not created just for ourselves. It, it's your soul that even on your best days, even when you get the girl or the guy or the job or the car or the house, the self well, the self, it's never satisfied. It wants more stuff. But the soul, the soul is that part of you as you lie in bed at night, even on those best days, the soul is something in you that goes, there's got to be more than this. What, what Dallas Willard taught was that when you speak of the self, you're actually speaking of three things. You're speaking of your will, your mind, and your body. Now, we all have a will. We celebrate willpower, but here's the dirty little secret about our will. It, it has some power, but in the, face of, of, uh, in the face sometimes of our mind or of our body, our will can be pretty weak. The will says, I'm on a diet. The body says, have another slice. The will says, it's dry January. The body says, well, a light beer doesn't count. Now, our minds, our minds, that's the seat of our feelings and thoughts. And, and it's the will and the body that can carry them out. I am not going to that hotel room. I'm not going to look at that website. And that's so often what the mind screams as the body walks in a different direction. Well, what's the soul? See, what your soul is, is your soul connects your thoughts, sensations, and emotions, your mind, it connects your mind and your will and your body, and it integrates them into you, into one being, your soul. It's what seeks harmony, what connects and integrates your will, mind, and body into you. And so a healthy soul is an integrated soul. An unhealthy soul is a disintegrated one. I, I, I love how Dallas Willard summed it up. He said, if your soul is healthy, no external circumstance can destroy your life. If your soul is unhealthy, no, it, no external circumstance can redeem it. In fact, how interesting is this? If you were here with us last week, we looked at Jesus' question, is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Well, in the Greek in which Matthew was writing, the word there that Jesus uses for life is the exact same word that he now uses for soul. You see, your life is more than food, and your soul is worth more than the whole world. That actual word in the Greek, it means to breathe or to blow. The soul, life, is the direct aftermath of God breathing, blowing his gift of life in creation into a person, making them an ensouled being, unlike anything else in creation. So at one level, Jesus is asking, 
Is not the integrated life of God within you worth more than any created thing? And so, yes, when Jesus speaks of forfeiting one's soul, he's speaking about eternity in the sense that when people do not recognize their need to connect with God or they don't have the various parts of their lives integrated with each other when there's disintegration, their soul becomes lost. Dallas Willard used to say that the soul is not lost because it's going to the wrong place. It may, ump, it may end up in the wrong place because it's lost. Which leads to, to Jesus' second question. He goes, he asks, what shall a man give in return for his soul? In other words, if you understand what this would cost you, a disintegration in in this world, a lostness now and and into eternity. If If you knew now, what would you be willing to give? What would you be willing to do in order to get reintegrated to save your soul? You see, guys, our souls get lost when we disintegrate. When the needs of our soul are ignored in exchange for the pleasures of the world. Our souls are forfeited when we know what the the God life, the breath of God in us wants to do, but our will is weak and the flesh is strong and, and we live not like a created thing, subject just to instinct. Think about it. It's like the father who claims that family is his first priority and he's always going to put his family first. But he refuses to come home from work. And so he gets the promotion and the job and the paycheck and the corner office. But something's not right. He feels it. And so he dulls it with another drink, another woman, a nicer car. You've felt this. It's like the mother who struggles to create the perfect home, but she's angry because and her husband doesn't help, and her kids aren't turning out perfect, and so they're not a great reflection on her, right? She's getting frustrated about her body because she's getting older, or her looks used to provide so much of her worth. And so she starts to drink a couple more glasses of wine at night and gossips about the other moms in towns with her friend and starts to flirt with the neighbor's husband. Now, if you asked her, she would tell you that the problem has to do with her husband or her kids or her age or her body. That's not her problem, though. The problem is she's losing her soul. You see, this is our battle. This is our conflict. We think thoughts unworthy of ones who carry within us the breath of God. We, we desire and choose things that are in direct conflict to what we would say are our deepest values. And when we do these things over time, our soul disintegrates. And this is why Jesus says, gaining the whole world does not help you if you lose your soul now and into eternity. And gosh, What would you give? Some of you can answer this question today. What would you give to get it back? To be reintegrated and whole again? You know, in working on this message this week, I came across the story of Armin Hammer. At the age of 92, Hammer was the chairman of Occidental Petroleum Company, a billion-dollar industrialist, philanthropist, 
He was called by USA Today, quote, a giant of capitalism and a confidant of world leaders. He had gained the world. It actually wasn't until his death, though, that his full story came out. Harvard-educated political scientist Edward Epstein wrote Dossier, The Secret History of Arm and Hammer, in which he reported that Hammer got his start by laundering money for the Soviet Union. And then he, uh, then he hired ghostwriters to write fictitious autobiographies about his life. He actually got more money through a string of broken marriages. He allowed his father to go to prison for a, a, a botched abortion that Hammer himself had performed. He neglected his only son, and he hid himself from an illegitimate daughter. He had no friends at Occidental, where, where he fired his top executives as, quote, though they were errand boys. When his brother Victor died, he filed a claim of $667,000 against the $700,000 estate rather than distributing it to Victor's children and nursing home-bound wife. When Hammer died, his son Julian didn't attend the funeral. Neither did the members of his two brothers' family. And neither did almost anyone. Within days of his death, Occidental distanced itself from him. The company's website doesn't mention him in its history at all. His pallbearers were his chauffeur, his male nurse, and a couple of other personal employees. Guys, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? What would Armand Hammer give in return for it? What would you? Well, as usual, Jesus doesn't answer the question. But once again, he gives a directly related command. No, this is not some wishy-washy, feel-good suggestion or platitude. Jesus is as direct here as he can be. He actually gives it even before he asks the question. Here's what he says. Whoever wants to be my disciple, whoever wants to learn from me, in a sense, that's what a disciple is, it's a learner, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. You know, it's actually remarkable. Um, just like whoever wants to be healed from a couple weeks ago, we learn needs to, to get up, pick up their mat, and walk. Well, if you want to live, if you want your soul back now and into eternity, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Deny yourself, right? Christianity for too long has been seen like as a self-improvement movement. It's not. It's a self-denial revival. Jesus says to the crowd, with Peter front and center, Guys, you might have missed this. I know you think this might be about what you can get from following me. Peter, look, you got a lot, and, and none of us can deny there are a lot of good things for those of us that choose to follow Christ. Peace, comfort, hope, joy, right? But guys, Peter, if you don't think that there's going to be a time where you're going to have to, to deny yourself, if you don't think there's going to be times of cost if you don't think there's going to be a time where you're going to have to do something that I want you to do that you don't want to do, if there's never a time where a conflict arises in your life between what you want for yourself and what Jesus wants for you, where you want to go or where God wants you to go, well then, 
I think what Jesus is saying is, you might not be my disciple. You might now be following. In fact, Peter, you might be using me. If you want to be my disciple, you have to practice denying the self. What does that mean? I mean, I, I guess it means sometimes based on, on the, the God-breathed soul in you, the values you've chosen, that means that you're going to sometimes have to, I don't know, pass on the girl or the guy. Skip the gossip. Skip the job, the promotion, the car, the house. Forget about the divorce. End the affair. See, if you don't want to lose your soul, the first thing you have to practice is this concept of self-denial. You have to stop doing, you have to deny the self, you have to stop doing the things which go against your God-breathed soul and disintegrate you. Now, how do you do that? Jesus says, you take up your cross. Other versions say you do it daily. And what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean how often we use, it doesn't mean the, the way it gets used often, right? Um, we'll say about a burden we have, oh, I, I guess this is just the cross that I must carry. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. So you see, in Jesus' world, a cross meant three things. It meant suffering, shame, and death. Suffering, shame, and death. See, in order to save your soul, you are going to have to deny yourself. But then you're going to have to be willing to put to death the things in your life that are disintegrating you, that are, are helping you lose your soul. And look, it's likely that crucifying those things, well, it might be embarrassing and it, and it might hurt. I, I mean, I don't know, if you're the dad who, who just can't stop working, you're going to have to pick up an instrument of death here. It might mean a career change. It might mean passing up a promotion. It, it might mean some embarrassment at the office when you start leaving earlier and coming in later. If you're finding yourself tempted towards some relationship with someone other than, than your spouse, you know, that, that needs to be crucified. That is going to disintegrate you. That will cost you your soul. How do you do that? Well, you probably got to get, you probably got to out yourself to someone. You probably need to come clean to a friend or a confidant and take the power out of that hidden sin. You're struggling with it, living a dual life? Well, put it to death. Crucify it. Is it going to be embarrassing? It might. It might mean admitting that you drink too much, you spend too much, you gossip too much, you worry too much. It might mean counseling, or AA, or accountability partners, or rehab, or a tracking software system. Because it's not enough just to deny yourself. In order to save your soul, you're going to have to put to death whatever it is that's disintegrating your soul. Boyfriend, girlfriend, pressuring you physically, or trying to get you to move in. And I know, of course, it would be cheaper to just have one place. And yeah, it's a drag, driving back and forth all the time. But do you want to disintegrate your soul? You see, deny yourself of those things. Of course, it's not easy. And if they don't know how important your faith is to you, you might even find it embarrassing. But that's okay. You pick up your cross. 
you draw that line of saying no, and then what do you do? And then you, you, well, you walk. Then you follow Jesus. You do what he does. You go where he goes. Uh, you love what he loves. You forgive like he forgives. You follow him. Not all of the things of the world you're trying to acquire. The answer to the business question is actually pretty simple. What does it mean to profit? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? The answer is zero, nothing. There is no profit there. There's, there's nothing left. I'm going to close with this. You see, anytime you preach on something like this, folks can start to feel guilty or ashamed or embarrassed. Like they messed up and everybody's going to know if they do this and, and, and God knows about it and so maybe God's given up on me and uh, you know, I, maybe I've chosen the world and it's too late and God's going to hold us against me. I want you to know this. Both Mark and Luke, in their recounting of these questions, they include this one final statement from Jesus on the topic. Jesus says, if anybody's ashamed of me, and again, why? Because crucifying something can be embarrassing, right? If anybody's ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Which I mean, that sounds kind of harsh, right? This is one of those verses I wish wasn't in there. I think this morning some of us, if we, if we read this following on, on the, you know, uh, this issue of, of our souls, it might add to our guilt or make us give up or run away from God. And, and it might. Until you remember who's sitting front and center in the crowd. It's Peter. It's human concerns, Peter. It's Peter, the one who had a hard time denying himself, but a short time later would deny Jesus in his greatest hour of need quite easily, three times, in fact. Some of you know the story, right? Jesus is captured by the Romans, and people on the street are accusing Peter of being part of the group of Jesus followers. And guess what Peter is? Well, in light of having to deny himself and pick up his cross, Peter instead chose to be ashamed. Me, not me, I, I don't even know him. But remember this. This is so key. Jesus is crucified by those same Romans. Peter, well, he's off hiding with the rest of the disciples. Jesus is dead and buried, and Jesus rises again. And what is the first thing that Jesus does post-resurrection? He goes and he finds Peter. And does Jesus shame him? Does Jesus use him as an example to teach the others a lesson? Does Jesus throw him out of his movement and tell the others to have nothing to do with him? No. Jesus puts him in charge of his church. Guys, that's what he longs to do in your life, with you and for you. And because he does this morning, he has a question for you. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The answer is nothing. What shall a man give in return for his soul? Well, I think the answer would be everything. And so now, today, deny yourself whatever it is that's disintegrating your soul, and then today, every day in understanding those places when you find them you take up your cross you crucify it and you follow him